Destroying the media lies and dismantling the narratives, one story at a time. It's the Adrian Slate Show. We have been in the middle of the longest terrorist attack known to man. We're in the midst of it, and the media hasn't even reported on it. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning in. The opioid problem is essentially a terrorist attack. And I know that sounds funny to say, but this is actually from Baz Muhammad. He's a co-conspirator of the Taliban in Afghanistan. And he says that, uh, that Islamic law approves of their jihad to take Americans' money and to kill them through heroin use and addiction. And so this is partly an issue of why people say, you know, elections have consequences, because they do. You know, elections like ones where somebody is in power and they have inappropriate relations with an intern and it hits the news and we decide to bomb an an aspirin factory. You know what I mean? We, We get somebody like Barack Obama into power and he decides, hey, I want to make this deal with Iran. Let me shut down Project Cassandra, which basically oversaw the uh, monitoring of Hezbollah in Latin America, which we discovered and we talked about on a previous podcast. Yeah, we're going to shut that down. And that's going to issue in the largest swath of drugs into the United States that we've seen in some time. So basically what happened was in what had happened was <laughs> in 2011, Obama says, hey, we're going to draw down troops and in Afghanistan. And then in 2014, 2013, that time frame, there was talk of doing what was called Operation Reciprocity. It was a way of bringing in um, Taliban members and basically taking them to a New York court, prosecuting them, having them turn on each other, and then, in effect, destroy the Taliban from the outset. So that was going to go into play. That was something that was being drawn up. And had been in the works for quite some time. And what did he do? Yeah, he pulled it. He pulled it. And just like he pulled Operation or Project Cassandra, uh, because he would he wanted to appease the Iranian government and their deal that he was trying to draw up, he did the same thing with this situation, Operation Reciprocity, uh, with the Taliban because he wanted to get Bo Bergdahl, the traitor, back. He wanted to get there was a, a lot to it. But Politico actually had the story, and it was really interesting. I'll read a little bit from the story. A high-stakes plan to indict Afghan drug lords and insurgency leaders on criminal conspiracy charges ran afoul of the Obama team. The Taliban reaps hundreds of millions of dollars a year from the narcotics trade, according to the U.S. and United Nations estimates. As Afghanistan edged ever closer to becoming a narco state five years ago, a team of veteran U.S. officials in Kabul Uh, presented the Obama administration with a detailed plan to use U.S. courts to prosecute the Taliban commanders and allied drug lords who supplied more than 90% of the world's heroin, including a growing amount fueling the nascent opioid crisis in the United States. The plan, according to its authors, was both a way of halting the ruinous spread of narcotics around the world and a new and urgent approach of confronting the ongoing frustrations with the Taliban 
whose drug profits were financing the growing insurgency and killing American troops. But the Obama administration's deputy chief of mission in Kabul, citing political concerns, ordered the plan to be shelved. Amazing. A senior Afghan security official, uh, Ashraf Hadari, <laughs> I love pronouncing those names, also expressed anger at the Obama administration when told about how the U.S. effort to indict Taliban narcotics kingpins was stopped dead in its tracks 16 months after it began. Quote, it brought us to the most breaking point that we've ever been to. It put our election into a time of crisis and then our economy almost collapsed, he said, of the drug money funding the Taliban. If that operation had continued, we wouldn't have this massive increase in production and cultivation as we do now. So the plan, Operation code, uh, code name Operation Reciprocity, was modeled after a legal strategy that the Justice Department began using a decade earlier against the cocaine-funded leftist uh, FARC guerrillas in Colombia in concert with the military and diplomatic efforts. The new operation's goal was to haul 26 suspects from Afghanistan to the same New York courthouse where the FARC leaders were prosecuted, turn them against each other and the broader insurgency, convict them on conspiracy charges, and lock them away. By the time the plan uh, for Operation Reciprocity reached fruition in May of 2013, the conflict had cost U.S. taxpayers at least $686 billion dollars. More than 2,000 soldiers had given their lives for it. And the Obama administration had already announced it would draw down almost entirely, you know, the following year. But like the Bush White House before, it had concluded that neither its military force nor nuanced nation building could uproot an insurgency that was financed by deeply entrenched criminal networks that also had corrupted the Afghan government to its core. Now, the document, a 240-page draft prosecution memo and 700 pages of supporting evidence was the result of 10 years of DEA investigation done in conjunction with the U.S. and allied military forces. Working with embassy uh, legal advisors from the departments of justice and state as well. In May 2013, it was endorsed by a top justice department official in Kabul who uh, recommended it to be sent to the DOJ's Specialized Terrorism and International Narcotics Unit in Manhattan. After a few agents flew in from Kabul uh, for spending a three-hour briefing, the unit enthusiastically accepted the case and assigned one of its best and most experienced prosecutors to spearhead it. Its demise was not instantaneous, but the most significant blow by far came on May 27, 2013, when the then-Deputy Chief of, of Mission, Ambassador Tina Kaidenau, uh, summoned Marsak and two embassy officials supporting the plan to her office and issued the immediate stand-down order. So that's interesting because, you know, we have this opioid crisis. You know, we have this flood coming into the country. And we know that it stems from the poppy fields in Afghanistan. And then it moves through Hezbollah. And Hezbollah is an arm of Iran. It's a terrorist arm of Iran. And then it moves into Latin America. It moves into Central America, South America. It ends up coming across the border with the help of MS-13. We talked about that in the past, where MS-13 is helping Hezbollah. And in doing so, they're getting weapons, they're getting training, and they're also getting a cut of the, uh, the drug industry. And then that money is run through 
used cars, you know, it's laundered through used car dealerships. And then those cars are sent to the Middle East. And that money from the drug trade is sent back to Iran so that they can conduct more terror activity as they have. And in doing so, they have the longest jihad known to man on the books with those addicted to heroin, those addicted to opioids and their uh, their addiction that succumbs basically every individual who partakes in it. I mean, every individual I know, I know people that have died of a heroin overdose. I've known people who were on heroin and committed suicide. So it's a, it's a big, stunning issue. But what's really stunning about it is why did Obama let it go? You know, President Trump has actually put the, a similar uh, project, very similar to Cassandra, back into play on Hezbollah. But remember, one of the things that stuck out to me was when we were talking about uh, Hamas and Hezbollah and the, the report that was given to me about Iran and how deep Hezbollah is within the Middle East, how deep Iran's tentacles go, it kind of spurred my, you know, the hairs on the back of my neck when I heard the one part about, I knew they were in Pakistan. We knew that they're uh, all littered throughout Syria and they're pushing their their force against Israel. But the one that struck out or stuck out to me the most was the part of them being in Afghanistan and with the Taliban. So Iran stood something to gain from all of this. Oddly enough, somebody else stood, stood to gain all across the board. And who would that be? Who do you think that would be? Oh yeah. The Clintons, the Clinton foundation, Let's not forget that one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in America, Kaleo Pharmaceuticals, was a partner with the Clinton Foundation. They were the company that increased their price of their auto injector used to treat opioid overdoses by 680% over the course of three years, which caused Democrat senators to get livid over it. They brought attention to it, which was amazing. Spencer Williamson, the president and chief executive officer of the Richmond, Virginia-based Kaleo Pharmaceuticals. He was under fire after the price of a two-pack of Ebzio, a device that treats life-threatening opioid overdoses, skyrocketed from $690 in 2014 to $4,500. Now, let's also not forget that there was another pharmaceutical company that donated a ton of money to the Clinton Foundation. Purdue Pharma. Ooh, who is Purdue Pharma? Well, they ain't making chickens. And they ain't making chicken injectors. They're not basting them either. They are the inventors of Oxycontin. And they're also cited by one news article, which we'll read in a little bit. Um, they were the ones who started the op- opioid crisis. So there's some money to be made there. But, you know, we'll get into that in a few. Operation Reciprocity, like some Hezbollah cases before it, died from the lack of political support one officer said, rather than an organized conspiracy to shut it down. Even so, the result was the same. You can kill things by not moving it, he said. If the DEA is waiting for approval and, some, and you know, no one says, hey, you have approval, it's a pause. That's pretty much it. It's a done deal. So I'm starting to think there's a few things that this Russian collusion investigation is being used as a smokescreen for. And, you know, it's really disturbing to even think that members of your own government would do any of this stuff. We know Uranium One was a deal where the Russians made out like bandits on one, what, one-fifth of our uh, uranium prospects? 
And that was done politically. That was allowed politically because they wanted them on board with the Iran deal. The Iran deal, for some reason, was such a big deal that they allowed a lot of things to go on. We know about Skoklovo. That was another thing to get them a part of the Iran deal. You know, the technology Silicon Valley styled sector that they wanted to build in Russia that the Clintons would profit off of as well. But what's funny about that was the Russians were using it to gain military intelligence from the United States. So you've got that going on. There's possible trafficking, possible sex trafficking that we're stumbling upon in our research lately. And some of those people have some connections to the Clinton administration or the Clinton Foundation, especially when you get into Epstein Island and you get into how many times Hillary and Bill went separately. And you get into the fact that some of the Nexium individuals were donating to the Clinton Foundation. Who knows what's behind all of this? But this is why we have to fight and keep things like ICE in play. Because ICE, they're wanting to shut ICE down. ICE immigration uh, enforcement works with human trafficking and sex trafficking organizations to stop the trafficking flow. They work with the Drug Enforcement Agency to shut down the opioids that are just rolling across the border. Could it be that this smokescreen that we're all sitting through is one big smokescreen to cover the, the profiting off of the drug trade, the profiting off of human trafficking, the profiting off of sales of uranium and, and military secrets to Cold War enemies? It's not as though the Clintons didn't run the second election off of money from China, okay? So it's entirely possible they're entirely corrupt enough to do all of this. Back in a moment. This is Adrian Slade. The Adrian Slade Broadcast. So let's take a look at the Clinton aspect of all this. Hillary Clinton, this is from the Free Beacon. Hillary Clinton has turned her focus toward the problem of widespread addiction to painkiller drugs, but she has failed to mention that she has taken money from the family that turned the invention of OxyContin into a $14 billion fortune. Clinton sought to villainize the painkiller industry in recent days, voicing support for a proposed tax that would be paid by drug manufacturers for any pain pill sold that uses active opioid ingredients, the most popular of which is OxyContin, the slow-release pill that has been described as the perfect recipe for addiction and has been abused by more than 7 million Americans over the past two decades. The drug was invented by Purdue Pharma, a company purchased by Dr. Mortimer Sackler, a Clinton Foundation donor, and his two brothers, Arthur and Raymond, back in 1952. The already wealthy Sackler family purchased the company as a small drug manufacturer, but it became a cash cow once OxyContin was approved by the government in when? 1995, during Bill Clinton's tenure. Purdue Pharma is currently in the midst of a public relations nightmare after the Los Angeles Times alleged last week that it had been knowingly misleading the public about OxyContin's ability to relieve pain for 12 hours as it's advertised to do. Quote, the drug wears off hours early in many people, a Los Angeles Times investigation found. They wrote, OxyContin is a chemical cousin of heroin 
And when it doesn't last, patients can experience excruciating symptoms of withdrawal, including an intense craving for the drug. The problem offers new insight into why so many people have become addicted to Oxycontin, one of the most abused pharmaceuticals in U.S. history. Now, when patients complained that Oxycontin was wearing off quicker, doctors were instructed by Purdue Pharma to prescribe stronger doses rather than advise patients to take a drug at shorter intervals. These more potent doses, of course, increase the likelihood of overdose and death. Quote, anything shorter needs to be nipped in the bud now, wrote one Purdue Pharma sales manager in a memo to staff. Experts on the issue told the Los Angeles Times that taking a drug like Oxycontin at 12-hour intervals is the, quote, perfect recipe for addiction. Imagine that. Internal documents reviewed by the Los Angeles Times indicate that Purdue Pharma was more concerned about revenue than making sure its drug was being used responsibly. A memo written in 1996 advising sales representatives to get doctors to prescribe higher doses of Oxycontin was headlined, with tons of dollar signs saying it's bonus time in the neighborhood. So if you're concerned about revenue, you would more likely be concerned about the inventory and the raw materials. And where do they come from? Afghanistan, the Taliban. The flooding of opioids from Afghanistan was economically sustaining a nation such as Afghanistan on the cultivation and sale of the poppies into commercially utilized opioids, along with the illegal sales that they used in their soft jihad. And it was also sustaining a business that sought to create dependent customers, which also allowed Clintons to benefit off the back end. I mean, that's what they did with the sale of our uranium to Russia. You know, you get a nice, nice little speaking fee and then you get a nice little million dollar donation into your, quote, foundation. It's also how Hillary facilitated the sale of fighter jets to Saudi Arabia. Another donation to the Clinton Foundation. It's also what they did with the sale of nuclear secrets from Los Alamos to China to fund Bill Clinton's re-election campaign. Remember that? And this type of drug profiteering isn't partisan and specific to the Clintons. I mean, it's on the, on the right, too. And even though the, you know, the opioids can be made synthetically, 90% of the opioid uh, you know, crisis is from those poppies in Afghanistan. But the opioid issue has roots with one specific company, and that company backs the Clintons and comes from the one place where we are engaged in our longest war to date. Now, this is from The Week. On December 12, 1995, the Food and Drug Administration approved the op opioid Angelasket Oxycontin. It hit the market in 1996. In its first year, Oxycontin accounted for $45 million in sales for its manufacturer, Stanford Connecticut-based pharmaceutical company, Purdue Pharma. Ten years later, the profits would inflate still further to $3.1 billion, but by the end, you know, by then the potent opioid accounted for at least 30% of painkillers in the market. And what's more, Purdue Pharma's patent for the original Oxycontin formula didn't expire until 2013. This meant that a single private family-owned pharmaceutical company with nondescript headquarters in the Northeast controlled nearly a third of the entire United States market for pain pills. During its rise in popularity, there was a suspicious undercurrent to the drug spectrum of approving, uh, of being approved and uses its uh, Purdue Pharma's relationship to the physicians that were suddenly privileging Oxycontin over other meds to combat everything from back pain to arthritis to post-operative discomfort. 
It would take years to discover that there was much more to the story than just benign introduction of a new, highly effective painkiller. Basically, the owners of the company built relationships with a network of physicians and medical organizations with their selling of Valume pre-1990. So in 1996, they grew their sales department and then dumped a ton of money into marketing Oxycontin. Back to the Week article. Long before the rise of big data, Purdue was compiling profiles of doctors and prescribing their habits into databases. These databases then organized the information based on location to indicate the spectrum of prescribing patterns in a given state or country. And the idea was to pinpoint the doctors prescribing the most pain medication and target them for the company's marketing onslaught. So the databases couldn't distinguish between doctors who were prescribing more pain meds and because they were seeing more patients with chronic pain or were simply looser with their signatures, that didn't matter to Purdue. The Los Angeles Times reported that in 2002, Purdue Pharma had identified hundreds of doctors who were prescribing Oxycontin recklessly, yet they did little about it. And the same article notes that it wasn't until June of 2013 at a drug dependency conference in San Diego that the database was even discussed in public. Meanwhile, in 1996, the FDA approved an 80 milligram version of the pill. Four years later, it approved a 160 milligram tablet. According to the FDA's History of Oxycontin Labeling and Risk Management Program, higher dosages were approved specifically for opioid-tolerant patients. These high milligram pills were probably one of the biggest reasons that Oxycontin became such a popular street drug. Recreational users and addicts could crush, sniff, inject the pill for a powerful high that promised them promised and lasted over eight hours. The euphoric effects and potential for abuse were comparable to heroin. But clearly doctors and pharmacies never drew the ghastly parallel. So basically, Purdue Pharma was the catalyst for the legal commercial drug abuse epidemic that we currently are witnessing and our involvement with Afghanistan. Iran's infiltration into Afghanistan via Hezbollah and Hezbollah's infiltration into Central and South America with their partnerships with Latin American drug cartels. And then topple that with our lax immigration policies. It led to a crisis that has been going on in the underground with illegal drug use for ages. And there's some opioids can be made synthetically. There has been no evidence that I've seen that this is taken away from Afghanistan's profiteering off of this, off of these offerings. Going back to the article, this is actually from, uh, yeah, this is still from the article. The deceptive marketing campaign from Purdue Pharma almost came to light in 2004 when it was sued by West Virginia for its excessive payments that it was making to the company through state programs. So, wow, they made money off the state for this. Revealed in the case was the fact that the drug's central claim that it could relieve pain for 12 hours was a hoax. Purdue was represented in the case by who? Eric Holder, <laughs> who would years later serve alongside Hillary Clinton in the Obama administration. Holder agreed that Purdue would give $10 million to West Virginia to be spent on programs to alleviate drug abuse. And of course, all these issues stem back to policies enacted by Bill Clinton's administration in the 1990s. You ever wonder why all of a sudden you had all these commercials with you know, Calexita may cause, you know, vomiting and diarrhea, suicidal thoughts. That was because it used to take extremely long amounts of time and testing before the FDA would approve anything. And then they couldn't really advertise it. But then comes Bill Clinton and he finds a way to do the one thing that 
you know, conservatives like to do, and that's deregulate. And for the Clintons, past history goes to show if he's deregulating, it's because he's profiting off the back end. But believe it or not, this came from the Huffington Post. Seriously. They broke down five reasons why Bill Clinton is responsible for today's opioid crisis. Former U.S. President Bill Clinton spoke at a U.S. Conference of Mayors in Miami about the growing opioid overdose crisis, where his hand in creating the crisis was largely ignored. Imagine that. Quote, this is from Bill Clinton. In the beginning, this despicable academic has had less violent delivery system. Our kids were... Horrible Clinton impersonation, sorry. <laughs> our kids were delivered, and a lot of our adults were delivered into paralyzing addiction by doctors, pharmacists, and drug manufacturers, not by armed gangs explain Mr. Clinton to the mayors. The FDA had a stringent set of rules the big pharma ads were to adhere by. Primarily, they couldn't express that a drug could treat a specific claim. This most kept this basically kept big pharma's TV drug pushers at bay. That all changed in 1996 in Clinton's first term. That's when big pharma figured out the ask your doctor loophole, advertising a medicine without saying what it does or what it is. 1996 also is the year Purdue Pharmaceuticals starts making Oxycontin as being an abuse and addiction resistant opioid that could be taken safely more often than the recommended twice a day maximum. In 1997, at the start of Bill Clinton's second term, the FDA relaxed its rules to allow specific drug for specific ailments claims. And here's a few ways Bill Clinton helped create the opioid crisis. Number one. Bill Clinton's FDA does nothing as Oxycontin sales soar. Obviously, we found that they didn't tell everybody what it actually would do and that it wouldn't be effective without large doses. But, you know, not that they didn't know. <laughs> Number two, Bill Clinton's DEA opened the floodgates to Oxycontin manufacturing. In a 2011 interview with Salon, DEA Supervisory Special Agent Gary Boggs explained that the DEA is required by statute to set quotas so that there is, quote, an uninterrupted supply for the legitimate medical and scientific research needs of the United States. So they needed that stuff to flow on in. Number three, Bill Clinton's NAFTA opened up the floodgates to the Mexican drug cartels. NAFTA suddenly made the Mexican land routes far more attractive to drug traffickers than air and sea transport. NAFTA has certainly attributed to the increasing drug traffic over the border, says a 2015 report on the Council on Hemispheric Relations. Author Peter Andrews explains that, quote, pushing NAFTA through Congress required deflecting concerns that opening the border to legal trade might unintentionally open it to illegal drugs. Number four, Bill Clinton's crime his crime bill created the perfect street dealer labor force. Though designed to take down the so-called drug kingpins, the policies actually cracked down on mid- and low-level dealers who spent increasingly longer times in prison. More dealers in prison for longer times just opened up more drug-dealing jobs for the people on the street. The revolving door from street to prison to street continued turning out people who, tarnished by the label convicted drug dealer, could only find work by returning to the drug trade. Combined with NAFTA, the crime bill made it possible for the Mexican drug cartels to wage increasingly violent wars on the south end of the border for control over lucrative border crossing routes and to build increasingly significant gang networks 
north of the border to distribute the product. And what's crazy is there is a town in Mexico right on the border that has had 40 of its mayoral candidates killed, executed, assassinated, because these gangs run those towns. They are the ones in charge. That is their town. Number five, Bill Clinton's drug czar fought to prevent safer alternatives to opioid painkillers. In 1996, as Bill Clinton won his second term, California passed the Compassionate Use Act, the nation's first medical marijuana law. Patents or patients began to use cannabis for a myriad of purposes, specifically for the kind of neuropathic pain that is resistant to opioid treatments like Oxycontin. Bill Clinton's drug czar not only tried to halt the expansion of medical marijuana in California and elsewhere, referring to it as, quote, Cheech and Chong medicine, he threatened doctors' uh, prescription licenses if they even talked about medical marijuana. Now, this is from The Hill. Democratic presidential frontrunner Hillary Clinton has received more campaign cash from drug companies than any candidate in either party, even as she proudly declares the industry is one of her biggest enemies. Clinton accepted 164,315 in the first six months of campaign uh, contributions from drug companies, and that's far more than the rest of the 2016 field, according to an analysis by Stat News. So, I, you know, it's hard for me to put together a link, but we do know the Clinton administration allowed for all of this. They set the stage for all of this. And then, in turn, the Clinton Foundation ended up receiving money. And also, Hillary Clinton's campaign was backed by these pharmaceutical companies. So would it be any shock to you that, you know, if Obama's involved in this somehow? I know the Clintons and the Obamas are not really buds, but, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if they got their hands dirty in the game, too. So Obama ends up just, you know, allowing us to just, eh, we're not going to worry about tracking Hezbollah. We're not going to worry about what's going across the border. We're not going to worry about the fact that uh, opioids were being just flushed from Afghanistan over to America. You know, drug cartels. I mean, we're right now fighting this border war in the media narrative out of the blue. As soon as we decided to get tough on the, on the, on the border, they've turned this thing into a false narrative of ICE agents stealing kids and, and locking up their parents and then mistreating and torturing them and putting them in cages. And they have this bleeding heart narrative out there when we're trying to watch for human trafficking, sex trafficking, opioid drug, uh, you know, running through the drug cartels who are working with Hezbollah in, in Latin America. And through, like I said, through my research, and this is not QAnon crap. This is all coming from sources that are considered by the left credible CBS, The Hill, you know, Politico, those kind of things. We're also seeing that there is an organization, and I'm going to get into this on another program. I just haven't gotten all the information together. That sex cult that had the Smallville actress involved in it out of New York, you know, uh, Nexium, who also had a Mexican uh, division, which was run by a former son of a Mexican, uh, you know, Mexican president. And it also had two heiresses to the Seagram's Corporation. Yeah, Seagram 7, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, they, as an organization, which it was started as some sort of uh, self-help organization, turned into a crazed sex cult. 
Yeah, they donated to the Clinton Foundation, too. So I'm just going to put that out there. We don't know if this Russian collusion stuff that they're trying to deflect, you know, everyone's attention towards with Trump. We don't know if this is behind the scenes, if this is what they're covering. If something were to come out where people on both sides of the aisle were profiteering off of illegal drug sales of heroin and opioids and also on human trafficking, whether it be sex trafficking or just human trafficking in general, then maybe it's going to world leaders, you know, like they're look at what the, you know, ISIS did with the Yazidis. I mean, we don't know, but if that were to come to light and that were behind all of this, it would be shocking and it would destroy the nation's fabric that our government would allow these kind of things to go on. But look, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. This is all speculation, but I'm able to put some dots together that kind of are disturbing. And I think if things come out down the road, it could be really eye-opening. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning in. You can check out the podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spreaker, TuneIn, iHeart. You can also check me out on the Roku channel, free. You can get it in your Roku streaming store, Adrian Slade Show. Donate patreon.com slash adrian slade show check out the blog adrian slade show.com we'll see you